Heavenly Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus. Thank you that you speak to us through your Word. We pray that your Spirit would be working in us this evening as we come to look at it, uh, that we might see Jesus more clearly and uh, know better how to love him and respond to him. Amen. Well, uh, Oscar Wilde once wrote, wherever there is a man who exercises authority, there is a man who resists authority. That seems pretty perceptive to me, particularly for someone who died over 100 years ago. And I'd suggest that today, even more so than then, an increasingly accepted attitude toward uh, authority in our society, whether it be uh, parents or teachers or politicians or police officers, is one of suspicion, mistrust, resistance, perhaps even outright rebellion. I certainly found that to be the case sometimes when I was teaching, and that was from nine-year-olds. Now, I'm not saying that it's necessarily always uh, wrong to resist authority in, in some way and in some situations. There are some impositions of authority who are unjust or self-seeking. But there was one man who had authority like no other in human history and who exercised it like no other as well. And how we respond to his authority is one of the most important decisions that we'll ever make in our lives. In a few weeks' time, we're going to be going right back to the very beginning of Matthew to look at the events leading up to and surrounding Jesus' birth uh, in, in the lead up to Christmas. But until then, over the next few weeks, we're going to be in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 in a series that we're calling Dimensions of Faith, looking at faith in Matthew's gospel. And we're kicking off today in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 22, looking specifically at faith in Jesus' authority. Earlier on in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we get a kind of uh, summary statement of Jesus' ministry. Matthew writes this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus' ministry at that time was defined by teaching and preaching and healing, and he did those things with authority. Our passage today follows on immediately from chapters 5 to 7, where Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches and preaches with authority. Just before our passage in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. The people were amazed at the authority with which Jesus taught. Any authority that the teachers of the law had uh, was on account of the fact that they were teaching from the Jewish Scriptures, from the Old Testament. It was a kind of borrowed authority that they had, in a sense, because of the authority of what they were teaching. But Jesus was different. He taught with his own authority. His words were authoritative because it was him who was speaking them. Having shown us Jesus preaching uh, and teaching with authority, Matthew goes on to show us Jesus acting with authority, with this uh, cluster of three healings, followed by a brief mention of many, many healings in our passage today. And as people come to Jesus for healing, we see the faith that they have in Jesus' authority to heal them. And not just their faith in Jesus' authority, but what it leads to as well. We see that they're wise 
to have faith in Jesus' authority because it leads to restoration, inclusion, and service. We're going to look at each of those three things uh, in order as we carry on. Firstly, faith in Jesus' authority leads to restoration. We're told in verse 1 that when Jesus came down from the mountain, after delivering the Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him. That makes sense. Uh, There would be a time later on in Jesus' ministry where the tide of popular opinion would turn against him. But at this time, Jesus was all the rage, and great crowds of people flocked around him. You can imagine all these crowds of people gathering around uh, to see Jesus, jostling for position, perhaps wanting to catch a glimpse of him. But imagine that even as that happens, a murmur spreads through the crowd. And uh, where everyone was previously jostling for position, the crowd now parts as one particular man approaches Jesus. The people who were all elbows just moments earlier are now quick to step aside, uh, careful not to touch this man. And not as, as you might expect because he was an important person, but because he was suffering from leprosy. They wouldn't have wanted to touch him, uh, not only because they didn't want to risk catching his disease, but also because they knew from the Old Testament law that touching a person with leprosy would lead to them themselves being made ceremonially unclean. For a time, they'd be cut off from God's people, unable to attend uh, the temple and worship God there, cut off, in a sense, from God himself. But what the crowds feared this man experienced. He not only suffered uh, from leprosy, but would have been a social outcast as a result. We read in Leviticus about how people with leprosy were to be um, put apart uh, from other people. Perhaps in this man's case, that would have meant living outside of the city. They sometimes even had to ring a bell and shout unclean to warn other people from coming too close to them. And due to being ceremonially unclean because of their disease, they were excluded from temple worship with the rest of God's people. Who knows what this man's life had been like uh, for who knows how long up until this point. Yet he had extraordinary faith in Jesus' ability to heal him. His approaching Jesus at all is extraordinary. A man with leprosy approaching a religious teacher, but he does so. He kneels before Jesus, and in verse 2, we read that he says this, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Imagine that. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He presents his situation to Jesus, fully convinced that Jesus has authority over it. Notice that it's not a question he asks. It's not, if you are able, will you? But, if you are willing, you are able. And if that was extraordinary, then Jesus' response is even more so. He reaches out a hand. I think that everything in every other person who was looking on would have rebelled uh, against this action. I don't know what they were thinking, perhaps, perhaps uh, flinching back in horror as Jesus stretched out a hand and touched this man. This man had declared Jesus' ability to heal him, And now Jesus declares his willingness to do so. We read that Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. And that's all it takes. A touch and a word from Jesus sets in motion complete restoration for this man. 
where according to the law, the transaction that should have taken place when Jesus touched this man with leprosy was his uncleanness transferring to Jesus and Jesus becoming unclean as well. What actually happened was that Jesus' cleanness, if you like, transferred to this man with leprosy and he was made clean like Jesus was. The man is instantly healed. Leprosy one moment, complete health the next. It's amazing. We're not told how long this man had been suffering, how long it had been uh, since the last person had touched him, but in an instant, his health is completely restored. And it's not just his physical health that's restored either. The restoration goes further and deeper than that. Back in Leviticus, we're not just told what was to happen to a person when they had leprosy, but also what was to happen when a person was cured of leprosy in order for them to to kind of regain their position in society, to become ceremonially clean again. And that's what Jesus is saying as he sends off this man who had previously had leprosy to present himself to the priests and offer uh, uh, the offerings that Moses had commanded back in Leviticus. This man's encounter with Jesus brings complete restoration, physical, spiritual, and social. Jesus is in the business of restoration, and that's wonderful news because restoration is a great thing. While I was uh, studying theology at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, uh, Keble College, which is right next door to Wycliffe, was undergoing a kind of restoration of its own. Uh, The outside of the building was being cleaned. Section by section, it was being covered in scaffolding, and when the scaffolding came down, it had been completely restored uh, to its former glory. You might not even have noticed how dirty it had become otherwise until you saw it restored, how, how clean and wonderful it looked. And something similar happens uh, to that when we put our faith in Jesus' authority, when we faithfully present our situation to him, like that man with leprosy did. We're not so much restored to our former state, but we're restored to how we should have been all along, uh, but weren't. Because of our natural rebellion against God, because of our sin, we're cut off from Him, covered, if you like, in the dirt of sin and unable to come into God's presence. And only Jesus has both the authority and the willingness to make us clean. He has the authority to make us clean, not just because of who He is, but because of what He's done for us as well. He lived the perfect life and died in our place, so that as he took our sin on himself, our, our uncleanness on himself, if you like, we can take his cleanness on ourselves, his right standing before God becomes ours. Faith in Jesus' authority leads to restoration. That is a wonderful in and of itself, but as if that weren't wonderful enough by itself, it's not all that faith in Jesus' authority leads to. As well, it leads to, to inclusion. We've seen that faith in Jesus' authority leads to restoration. Our second uh, thing we're going to look at is that faith in Jesus' authority leads to inclusion. We're told of another man who came to see Jesus. Uh, This one, in many ways, very different uh, from the man with leprosy. Have a look down at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. This man was a centurion, an officer in the Roman army of of Herod Antipas. 
ranking, if you like, a bit like a captain in our army today, I think. It's been said that the centurions were the actual working officers, the backbone of the army. The discipline and efficiency of the legion as a fighting unit depended on them. So this is, this is quite an important guy in society. And this important man approaches Jesus, like the leper, and uh, he's in need of help and presents his situation again before Jesus. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Unlike the leper, this man brings the needs of another uh, before Jesus. His servant couldn't come himself. He was at home paralyzed. But again, Jesus shows his wonderful willingness uh, to, to deal uh, with, with, with this man's problem, with his paralysis. He simply says, I will go and heal him. It's as, it's as easy as that. But the centurion balks at Jesus saying that. He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. The centurion seems to be pretty well informed about who Jesus is. And no doubt he would also know that, again, according to the Old Testament law, a Jewish person couldn't go into the house of a Gentile person, that's a non-Jewish person, without, again, being made ceremonially unclean. It wasn't something that a Jewish religious leader would ever uh, consider doing. But we know already that Jesus doesn't have a problem with that. But the centurion says that he doesn't deserve to have Jesus even come under his roof. We might be thinking, well, why did he bother to come out to see Jesus? Did he just come out to, to have a chat about his servant's condition and then go home? But no, as we carry on in verse 8, the centurion says this to Jesus, But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion likens his position to Jesus's as someone who is under authority, but also has authority over others. Again, it's unclear just how this centurion is so well informed about, about Jesus, but it seems that he is aware of the fact that Jesus is a man who is acting under the authority of God the Father and who also has amazing authority over others as well. While comparing their positions, the centurion acknowledges that Jesus' authority is greater than his own. He says of those under him, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. His authority reaches as far as being able to tell people to, to come and go and to act, and he expects them to obey him on the basis of his authority over them. Where his authority doesn't reach to, though, is commanding his servant to be healed and expecting him to be healed as a result. All his authority means absolutely nothing in the case of his paralyzed servant. But he has faith in Jesus' authority. He says to him, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He has no doubt that even at a distance, Jesus is able to heal his servant with a word. And this wonderfully proves to be true. In response to the faith of the centurion, Jesus does heal his servant, completely heals him. No physio, no rehab, just restoration. Faith in Jesus' authority leads to restoration, but it also uh, leads to inclusion. Before Jesus sends the centurion back to his uh, now healed servant, he has this kind of aside to his followers on uh, talking about the centurion's faith. Have a look down at verses 10 and 12. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
I say to you that many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Faith in Jesus' authority leads to inclusion, and inclusion for all kinds of people as well. While uh, being different in many ways from each other, what ties the, the three people that we see healed in this passage together is that in some senses, they are kind of outsiders in Jewish society. We, we meet a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Uh, three groups of people who, who in some senses might have been seen as, as less than in Jewish society in that day, but Jesus meets them and accepts them completely. And we see that faith in Jesus brings inclusion for these people, for all kinds of people. In his reference to feasting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jesus is talking about heaven. A feast is a common picture throughout the Bible of what heaven will be like. Back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8, it says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's a wonderful picture. But if it's a common enough picture for Jesus to use, what might have been surprising for those who were originally hearing him was who Jesus says will be present at the feast. Many will come from east and west and take their places at the feast. This centurion was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. But Jesus was astonished at his faith and applies that as a result of it, he will be welcomed at this feast. This feast, which in Revelation, the final book in the Bible, is referred to as being uh, Jesus' wedding banquet. Uh, many of you will know that I'm uh, in, in, the, in the throes of wedding planning myself and have been thinking about uh, guest lists for wedding receptions, and it's really tricky. To begin with, I, I suggested a number of people that I thought would be uh, reasonable and realistic, but then when I went on to list all the people that I thought it would be good to invite, I have to admit that, that my number of people far exceeded my half of the people that I said would be a good number in the first place. Then there was this kind of brutal cull, it was, it was quite awkward, it's an absolute minefield to be honest with you. But God, it turns out, perhaps unsurprisingly, doesn't have a problem when it comes to the attendance list for this heavenly wedding banquet. It's very clear who is on the guest list, who is in, and who is out. It's not as the Jewish people of the day might have thought, Jewish people in and Gentiles out. No, Jesus says that many will come from east and west. It's not Jews in and Gentiles out. Those who will be in are those who have faith in Jesus. That's the sole requirement for attendance at this feast faith in Jesus. It will lead to inclusion for all kinds of people, any person who has faith in his authority. It's painfully clear that from what Jesus says, that doesn't mean everyone. It's all kinds of people, but it's not all people. Jesus says that there will be some who won't be included, and some of those people who won't be included might be the people who it looked most likely would be. But the reason that they're not is that they don't have faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the only way to be uh, included at this feast. 
faith in Jesus' authority leads to inclusion. We're all, by nature, outsiders. We're excluded from God's kingdom, but wonderfully, by faith in Jesus, in his authority to gain us an invite, we can be included. We can confidently expect to one day take our places at that feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That will be then, but what about now? Well, faith in Jesus' authority doesn't only lead to a restoration and inclusion. We see that it also leads to service. And that's our final point. Faith in Jesus' authority leads to service. Take a look down at verses 14 and 15. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. If the uh, leper and the centurion showed their faith in Jesus through what they said to him, then Peter's mother-in-law shows her faith through her actions. She is sick in bed when Jesus arrives, and Jesus again shows his willingness and his authority to heal. Having previously healed in our passage, first with a touch and a word, and then with just a word, he now heals with simply a touch. He takes this woman's hand, and immediately the fever that she's suffering from leaves her, and she is so completely restored that she's able to immediately get up and to serve Jesus. And she does so as a response to what he's done for her. It's just that, a response. It's not that Jesus comes in and uh, sits down in Peter's house and puts his feet up and says, it's been quite a long, hard day of healing. If you serve me for a little while, I'll think about healing you as well. No, he comes in and heals her immediately, and the service that she then gives him is a response to what he's done for her. And it should be the same for us as well. Faith in Jesus' authority should lead to service. All authority in heaven and on earth, we're told, has been given to Jesus. He is Lord. And it's entirely fitting that if we have faith in Him, we should serve Him as such. Not to earn anything from Him at all, but in response to what He's done for us already. We go on to read in our passage that that evening, people brought to Jesus uh, many people who were demon-possessed, and Jesus uh, cast out the demons, we're told, and healed all the sick, Matthew says, all the sick. There was, there was no uh, issue with hospital beds that night in that town because there was no one who was sick. Jesus had healed them all. And Matthew goes on to say that this was to fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah made when he said, he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. I guess that might be a familiar verse to many of us, and if you're anything like me, you most naturally think of the cross when you think of that verse, of Jesus taking our sins upon himself. But here, Matthew applies it to Jesus' healing ministry, and I think that that's because each of these healings is a kind of a foretaste of what Jesus would go on to do, would go on to achieve through his death and resurrection. There's a sense in which each of these healings is only temporary in a way. The man with leprosy, the, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, have all since died. They've been dead for many, many, many years now. In that sense, their healings didn't last, but they pointed towards something that would not be temporary, a restoration and inclusion that Jesus would earn for us through his death and resurrection. God does not promise to always heal us uh, immediately here today. Uh, he certainly can, and He may, 
and we love to pray for that. But even if He does heal us in the here and now, that's only a tiny foretaste of what He promises will come for all of those who have faith in Jesus' authority, which is complete restoration and inclusion. No more brokenness or rejection ever. That passage from earlier on in Isaiah again, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. If we have faith in Jesus' authority, we're promised, uh, we're promised that in the future. And here and now, we should serve him in light of it. As we draw to a close, let me uh, remind you of our annual vision this year. In view of God's mercy, being living sacrifices and having transformed minds. I'm convinced that dwelling on this restoration and inclusion uh, that faith in Jesus' authority leads to will do a great job of transforming our minds to make them more in line with what God would have them be. And in view of God's mercy, faith in Jesus' authority should lead to our service of Him, to our being living sacrifices. That quote from the beginning again, wherever there is a man who exercises authority, there is a man who resists authority. And that will very sadly be, be true today in many cases of people's response to Jesus' authority. But let that not be our response to Jesus' authority. When it comes to his authority, let us choose faith over resistance. Let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Uh, thank you for the authority uh, that he has and for his willingness to use that authority for our benefit. Please help us to respond rightly uh, to his authority, to, to rightly submit to it, to have faith in him as a result of it, to serve him in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen.